You're listening to Cross Life, the college ministry of Grace Bible Church in Bozeman, Montana. Our current series is Imago Day, a study of how the character of God impacts your daily life. My name's Tanner, and I have the privilege of working alongside Andy in a ministry called Cross Life. And Cross Life is about worshiping God, worshiping Christ. That's what we're here to do tonight. Um, I enjoy my occupation, I enjoy my vocation. But I enjoy teaching the Word of God, perhaps one of the most of all, and I've been looking forward to opening it with you tonight. But in order to do that, or before we do that, I'd really like to ask the Lord's help. So would you pray with me? Why don't we stand as we pray? Lord, you are a great God. Uh, You are the one that we want to be our vision. Whatever befalls our heart, whatever happens in our life, Be still our vision. Be first, Lord. Open our minds and our hearts and our eyes to understand your word tonight. It's your help that we need. It's your help that we're petitioning uh, you, the sovereign God over all. Perform your work tonight. See to it that your name gets glory. Glorify yourself, Lord. Get praise and worship and adoration. First through prayer, then through song, now through teaching, and then song, and then as we visit, get glory for yourself, Lord. Glorify your name, lift your name up, lift your character, make it known, make it manifest through your word, Lord. We ask this in the precious name of your Son. Amen. Amen. I have a handout, and you should have got one as you came in, but if you didn't, why don't you raise your hand, and Dylan's going to get you one. Uh, Dylan and Josh will get you one, but it looks like this. If that's helpful to you, praise God. Use it, and if it's not, set it aside. Don't let it be a distraction. Uh, I spent a long time on Microsoft Word formatting that darn thing, longer than I should have. Do you ever get frustrated using that, trying to drag and drop? So uh, it was a privilege to study for the lesson, but making that handout was not. I'm going to be honest with you. So I hope that it is of help to you, though. We've been going through a series called Imago Day. Many of you know that, but I recognize, uh, I don't recognize some of you, which means you don't know that. Imago Day means image of God. We've been studying <clears throat> the fact that we were made in God's image. And if we're going to reflect accurately the image of God, what does that mean? It means we need to know what he's like. What is God like? And a million smaller problems in our life are answered as we answer the question, what is God like? What is God essentially like? What is he like in and of himself? What is his character? What are his attributes? How can we understand him? Tozer rightly said, uh, the highest thought that any mind can entertain, the loftiest word in any language is its word for God. What is God like? We're going to try and answer part of that tonight and that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And uh, this isn't going to be exhaustive at all. That's my disclaimer. Okay, what we're going to cover tonight in God's sovereignty, uh, it's not exhaustive, but <clears throat> here's what I hope to do. If, if, uh, if I was opening the Word with you and this Word was, say, this bottle of water, I hope to just whet your appetite just give you a little taste of God's sovereignty. So when you go home, you're thirsty and you want to study and learn and know what is God's sovereignty really like? I'm going to tap it. I'm going to touch it. We're going to spend 40 minutes in it. 
And it's up to you to plumb its depths on your own. Can I be honest with you? It's a highly personal uh, subject. This, this dives into some areas in your life and my life that I wasn't comfortable with. I was raised in a church in a small town, but I didn't come to know God until I was a little older. And I remember when I was in college and I encountered the sovereignty of God in scriptures and I was struck with it. And it really wrecked me for a little bit. I was like, what is this? I have not read about this. This is, how, this is what God, I'm really like this? God's really like this? I began to look and I want, and in fact, I bet everyone or most of you in here, many of you, if you're following Christ tonight, you would, you would affirm that God is sovereign. <clears throat> I'm just guessing, I'm speculating, but guess that you would affirm that. <clears throat> but the question I want to ask is, how sovereign is God? How much in control of everything is he? What is the extent of his sovereignty? What kind of depths does it plumb? How far does it go? What is it like? Okay. Um, this can be one of the most difficult things in Scripture, I, I really think, as we wrestle through what does is, what is God's sovereignty look like? And there was a season, like I mentioned for me, of wrestling in college. Uh, what about that car wreck you got into? Was God sovereign over that? What about uh, that abuse you sustained? as a young man or young woman or later in life, was God sovereign in that circumstance? What about your friend's sickness? What about your dad's salvation? Is God sovereign? Is he sovereign in those circumstances? And I don't ask these questions to put the cat among the pigeons, so to say, to just rile you up. I ask these questions because these are questions that we ask, like it or not, Right? Is God really sovereign over these circumstances? And uh, I resonate a bit with Jonathan Edwards in something he wrote about God's sovereignty. I think you will as well. It says this, From my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me, but I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to the sovereignty of God but I never could give an account how or by what means I was thus convinced, not in the least imagining at that time nor a long time after that there was any extraordinary influence of God's Spirit in it, but that only, but only that now I saw further and my reason apprehended the justice and reasonableness of it. However, my mind resisted it and it put an end to all those cavils or cavils and objections." struggles, those, uh, those dynamics in his mind. And he writes this, and there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from that day to this, so that I scarce have ever found so much as the rising of an objection against it. In the most absolute sense, I have often since had not only a conviction, but a delightful conviction. The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. But my first conviction was not so. Anybody else sympathize with that? That's a, that's a much more eloquent testimony than my own, but it's similar to it. I, object, I had serious objections to the doctrine of God's sovereignty. But Edward says, this was a once really irritating and objectionable thing. And now, what is it? Sweet, pleasant, bright. Where are you at in this spectrum tonight? As we breach, as we 
uh, dive into God's sovereignty? Where do you fit along there? Is this a new thing to you? You're not a Christian. You're here tonight checking things out. Are you saturated in love with the, the doctrine of God's sovereignty? Where do you fit? Are you okay with it? Uh, where are you at? I want you to think about that as we, as we approach this. And we're going to do that a couple ways tonight. We're, mainly, we're going to spend most of our time in one text. And that text is in Daniel. I'd like you to grab a Bible and go to Daniel. Daniel's in the Old Testament. Um, as you get to Daniel, go to, it's after Ezekiel. Go to chapter 4 with me. And uh, just a context of the Old Testament, where we are in Daniel is this. Uh, creation, fall, patriarchs. God has given the patriarchs and he's established uh, his nation Israel. He's brought them out of Egypt. He's delivered them into the promised land after their wandering in Israel. They've gone through the judges, the kings, and then the united nation under, under the kings and the judges. And then what? <clears throat> The nation divides into the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. In 700, around 7, I don't know what it is, 722 B.C., uh, Israel, the northern kingdom's wiped out. Wicked kings. But the southern kingdom uh, sustained for a while longer. And then Babylon comes in, boom, wipes them out. And they've been conquered. So God's people are decimated. They're... Uh, they're sad, they're unhappy. In fact, Daniel's been imported from Jerusalem to, uh, to Babylon, to the king at Babylon. And uh, we don't have time to go through the first three chapters, but probably most of you are familiar with the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah, you've heard of those names. You know who those people are. That's chapter three. But think about maybe 30 years later. And that's where we're going to pick up in chapter four. Okay, and the theme of Daniel. The theme of Daniel is one of the themes of Daniel is God's sovereign control. Okay, and He's choosing to set the scene for the coming of Christ with some prophecy. Uh, his nation Israel is down and out. Chapter four is unique in that it's written by Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And if you look with me at chapter. 4 verses 1 through 3 it says this Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples nations and men of every tribe language that live in the earth may your peace abound it seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the most high God has done for me what's he saying here's my testimony <laughs> here's what the Lord's done in my life and it seemed like a good idea for me to tell you about it here in a few weeks we're going to have some testimonies probably uh, <clears throat> some of you, maybe you don't even know it yet, are going to stand up here and share what the Lord's done in your life. And Nebuchadnezzar is writing verses 1 through 3 after the fact. Okay, so as we go into verse 4, we're going to be looking backwards again. But Nebuchadnezzar says, here's what's going on. What happened? What is he declaring? This is what he's done for him. Verse 3, how great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. That's what Nebuchadnezzar has to tell us. Why does he have to tell us that? Well, let's figure it out. Verses 4 through 18. 4 through 18, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision. Okay, he's a vision. He calls people in to interpret the vision. The people can't interpret the, the, the vision. Then he calls Daniel in. Guess what? Daniel interprets it. Um, the vision is... is 
not that wild of a vision, kind of a typical vision. In the Old Testament, verse 15, uh, he's talking about the vision. He says, yet, uh, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, a band of iron and bronze around it, new grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. What's happening here? God's given him a vision, but Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know what it's about yet. Daniel, in verses 19 through 27, interprets the vision in the prophecy, and guess who it's about? It's about Nebuchadnezzar. And that breaks Daniel's heart because <laughs> this isn't a good vision. But why does this vision have? I'm a why kind of guy, I don't know about you. I always want to know why this, why that. Daniel tells us why this vision, why is this going to happen? Look with me at verse uh, 25, reiterates what I read earlier. You'll be driven away from mankind, your dwelling place, be with the beasts of the field, be even given grass to eat like cattle, drenched with dew, seven periods of time will pass over you until you what? Why the vision? Why is this going to happen? Until you what? Recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whomever he wishes. Until you realize this, Nebuchadnezzar, this is what's going to happen. Okay, so Daniel warns him, verse 27, he tells him to repent. And then we pick it up in verse 28. Verse 28 says this, and all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. So God gives him a year. Daniel tells him to repent, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't. He has a full year to turn away from his sins. But that doesn't happen, does it? No, we're about to see exactly what happens. Verse 30, the king reflected and said, what's, what's going on? He's up on his roof. Okay, he's up. Imagine him on the palace and he's overlooking. He's able to just see everything. And everything that he has, th- who's Nebuchadnezzar? He's the most powerful person in the world at the time. He's not, he's not like our president. He's not like some king. He's the most powerful person in the world. And as he looks out over his kingdom, what does he see? Humanly speaking, he sees everything that he's built. And let me tell you what, it was impressive. It was really impressive. Here's what he says. Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself has built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for my glory and my majesty What's he doing? That's what he's doing, isn't it? He's beating his chest and saying, look at what I did. Can you believe this? And he did, humanly speaking, some incredible things. Walls and palaces and temples. But one of the most incredible things, one of the most incredible things was this. Nebuchadnezzar married a wife from Medea. And he married her as a truce to resolve uh, between two kingdoms and I don't know about you, but if you got paired up with somebody as a truce to resolve two kingdoms, you might not be super happy about it. His wife was a little homesick, okay? She missed the mountains of her hometown. I don't know where you're from. What's your hometown like? Maybe you miss the plains. Uh, Maybe as you go to the plains, you miss the mountains. Fact is, she missed the mountains. Nebuchadnezzar says, no problem. I'll build you some mountains. So what's he do? He moves tons (laughs) and tons of dirt. And he stacks this dirt up and he builds man-made mountains. He doesn't pull up the D6 cat and bulldoze a big mountain, okay? We're talking about 500 BC, I think. 500 BC, it doesn't, it gets men and men carry mounds of dirt. 
and he builds a mountain. And not only that, he builds gardens and trees and luxurious plants on it. What What do gardens require? Water. So he builds canals and engineers systems to bring up water from the Euphrates and incredible, incredible stuff. The Greeks called this one of the seven wonders of the world. And people would travel from everywhere to see it. So humanly speaking, if anybody's going to say, look at how awesome I am, it's Nebuchadnezzar, right? He says, look at what I built. This is my Babylon. My Babylon. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never built any 400-foot high mountains. Grace is 70 feet high at the peak, by the way, just for reference. This was 400 feet high. And I, and I get pretty proud of myself sometimes. I change diapers and I do things and I serve. And, and I realized that as I was thinking about this, you don't have to be the most powerful world in the man to be terrifically arrogant. Some of the most haughty people, including myself, humanly don't have that much to be proud of. So you don't have to be king of the world, so to speak, to be haughty. And you think, if anyone, I think, if anyone can say stuff like this, it's Nebuchadnezzar. That's no excuse. In fact, what do we see? The very next verse. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, kingdom has been removed from you and you will be driven from mankind and your dwelling place, it sounds familiar, will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until, what? You recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on whomever he wishes. And immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind, began eating grass like the dew of heaven until his hair had grown out like eagle's feathers and nails like bird claws. Can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine the, the, the human ruler of earth, so to say? One day he's this man who people fear and respect and revere. Next day he's out back in their lawn eating grass. What, what is this? Clinically speaking, or medically speaking, it's a disease called lycanthropy. You can look it up if you want later on Wikipedia. Where a man loses his mind and thinks he's a beast. There's cases diagnosed to this. Okay? He's, a, he's a beast for all practical purposes. And then we see this. After seven periods of time, probably seven years, we don't know for sure, but for sake of simplicity, we'll say seven years, probably at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, did what? Lifted my eyes up to heaven and my reason returned to me. He got his reason back. But brothers and sisters, even this is a sovereign act of God. God makes him lose his mind. God brings his mind back. No one comes to God unless he calls him, unless he draws him. And God now restores to Nebuchadnezzar's reason. Just as God takes it away, now he restores it. His lycanthropy, lycanthropy vanishes. Everything's normal, right? No, it's not normal. What's not normal? An egomaniac is now a worshiper of God. An arrogant king is now a worshiper of the Most High God. I believe Nebuchadnezzar was converted here. I think it's evidenced by the worship and true praise. 
In the second part of this verse, it says, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. So instead of blessing himself, remember the verses above? Here I am. Here's my Babylon. Here's my kingdom. Instead of praising himself, he praises the Most High God. Instead of beating his chest, he praises God. Instead of his false pretense of immortality, you know what people would say in those days? As they came to the king, they'd say, O king, live forever. O king, live forever. Nebuchadnezzar realizes his body, his human body, it's not going to live forever. But he says there is one who's going to live forever. And that's, can I be honest with you, that's where I hope this ends for you tonight. Worship. I hope you see Nebuchadnezzar, you see a right view of God in you. The end is worship. You worship God like Nebuchadnezzar. He ascribes worth to God. He praises God. That's what a right view of God produces. Worship, reverence, humility. What else can we gain from this? As we read through these passages, what else can we gain? When we talk about God's sovereign control over all, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to pull God's sovereignty and say, just focus on God's sovereignty because we can't do that. Why? Because His sovereignty is united with, runs parallel with, and uh, works together with all of His character. When we talk about God's sovereign control, it's vital we establish His omnipotent uh, sovereign control on the basis of His character as a whole, not just a little bit. Let me give you an example. Maybe this will help. God's, uh, God's attributes, as beautiful as they are, beauty is an accurate word to describe what God is like. They're not like a flower. Okay, you don't do this. You don't go, ooh, that's a pretty one. God is holy. Ooh. I like that one. God is good. Oh, that one, God is wrathful. I don't care for that one quite as much. God is, uh, God's just. That's pretty good, I I guess. Uh, God is joy. Mm. God is love. What ends up happening? Okay, you're robbed of the beauty of the whole. We can't pluck the individual (laughs) attributes of God off and examine them individually. We have to view God's sovereignty as a whole, as a part of His character. R.C. Sproul Jr. writes this, We are in grave danger, danger indeed if we seek to pit against one another or to rank in relative importance the attributes of God. The doctrine of His simplicity reminds us that God is one, that He is not composed of parts. The attributes of God are not like that old spiritual dry bones wherein we affirm the wrath bones connected to the justice bone, the justice bones connected to the omniscience bone, neither does God find balance. Listen, neither does he find balance between competing qualities as if his wrath was muted by his grace or his love is tempered by his holiness. These are all one. The same thing in the end. All of what he is, he is because he is God. That's what Andy really hit on last week. God is one. His character is woven together. He is sovereign. He's also good. Can you imagine if God was sovereign and not good? We would have a monster. Not be God, granted. But if God was sovereign and did whatever He wanted and was not good, that would be an absolutely terrifying thing. If, I, if you were in control, If you were sovereign, if I was sovereign, that would not be a good thing. But God is good. Romans 8, 28, Paul tells us he works all things for the good, for the good of those who love him and call according to his purpose. They're predestined to be conformed to the image of him. Okay, he is good. 
He's right in governing, controlling. We go on, reread this. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Abraham Kuyper, uh, I have this sheet or this quote on your sheet. It says, there's not a square inch in the whole dominion of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign all, does not cry, mine, mine. God is sovereign over all. Every square inch of earth and sea and universe is God's. He is sovereign over all. There's no state boundaries. You don't pull out a map and go, okay, I see where his dominion is here. Or plot it on a GPS or pull up Google Maps and and type in dominion of God. It doesn't take you to a certain range. God's dominion is from shore to shore. It's from east to west. It's an everlasting dominion. What's more, it endures from generation to generation. When uh, my wife had our little daughter, she's two, two two weeks and four days old. That made four generations in our family right now that are alive. Okay, that's four generations. Uh, some of you may have five generations. That's a big deal. Five is a, a big stretch. Someone would have a great, great grandma. Uh, every now and then we see six generations, which would be wild. The world record is seven. Okay, <laughs> seven generations. I found grandma's 109. That's about every 20 years there's a kid in the picture from then to, down on. Every 20 years, and there's seven generations. Great, 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 great grandma. Generations to generations. You think seven generations is too many? Listen, Adam stood before God in judgment. He stood at his throne and was judged by God. Your great, 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 great grandpa stood before God. You will stand before God. My daughter will stand before God. Our children's 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 children will stand before God if He tarries. His rule, His dominion, His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Thousands and thousands. Like His character, it's unmutable. It doesn't change. God isn't impeached. He doesn't have four-year terms. I go, I'm not okay with that decision God made. I think we'll see if we can sign a petition and get Him out. Doesn't work like that. God is sovereign. He endures forever. Forever. That's why verse 35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. What's this verse mean? What does this mean? Because some people would use this to say, You don't matter to God, you're not a big deal. I don't think that's what it's saying. In fact, 1 Peter 5, 7 says uh, just the opposite. It says, cast your anxiety on Him for it matters to Him about you. He cares for you. What is this verse saying? What is this verse saying? I think that Nebuchadnezzar is drawing a contrast here. Uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's awakening, he's making a comparison to the triune God and the value, beauty, and glory of God is incalculable compared to you. It's a humbling thing. Get this. It's a humbling thing for God to take his eyes off of himself. Does that sound strange to you? If it does, it's probably because you and I are wrapped up in a self-absolved world and often we're hearing, take your eyes off yourself and place them onto other people. Well, we don't have much reason to stare at ourselves, do we? But God has all the reason in the world. For all of eternity's past, he was caught up in his own beauty and glory. 
And it's a humbling thing for him to turn his attention away from himself and to look at us. It should not make you feel uncared for, but it should make you feel humble. Okay, Paul in Athens, Greece, in the synagogues, when he's reasoning in the synagogues in Acts 17, he says this, that God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by humans' hands as, as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You've heard me say this before, God doesn't need us. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. I just read a bizarre, bizarre article in a Rolling Stones magazine about a Christian, it was called Christian, it was more like a, a cult group. Uh, they, th- they thought that they needed to work to train their army for God to come back, for Christ to come back in His second coming. You have to get very far in that article to figure out they're bizarre and they're off. Okay, God does not need us. He's pleased to use us. But the nations are as a drop in a bucket. That's why it says he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. God does whatever he wants. If you can remember something, remember this. God does whatever he wants. What does he want? That's a lesson for a whole nother night about God's will. But God's will is this. According to 1 Timothy, it's salvation. Other places, it's sanctification, it's self-sacrifice. Uh, it's satisfaction, it's submission, sanctification, it's even suffering. It's even suffering. God in His sovereignty performs all these things, and we'll take a little closer look at some of these in a bit, but suffice it to say that God does whatever He wants. What does this mean? It means that man is not free. And to suggest that you and I are free, I think, I'll be honest with you, is just madness. It's madness. You and I aren't free. We're dependent on other beings, other substances, other things. We're never truly free. And neither is our will. We're not free. We're constrained by natural laws, laws of physics. We're constrained by human laws. You and I aren't free. We're dependent. And I know this was talked about widely on campus a couple years ago in a Q&A. And the reason for, for wrong things like shootings and massacres was because man has free will and he's able to do whatever he wants. As if God just sits back on his recliner and says, whatever. Beloved, that's a low view of God and an exalted, deified view of man. And that's not the Bible's view. Who is free? God is free. That's who is free. God does what He wants. The only thing God's constrained by is His character, which isn't constraining at all. It works in harmony with His movements, with His desires, with His will. The only one who's truly free is God. No one and nothing can hinder Him, compel Him, or stop Him. And to be this way, He must possess absolute authority, and He does. What am I saying? God is sovereign, and He is absolutely sovereign. Psalm 115.3 says this, Our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases, all that He pleases. How far does God's sovereignty extend? Psalm 135.5-6, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth and the seas and all the deeps. 
the deepest trench in the ocean off the coast of Japan was at the Marianera Trench, tens of thousands of feet below the surface of the sea. God is doing what he wants. He's sovereign over that. In the Arctic Circle, in this building tonight, in the stretches of the universe, God does what he wants. God is absolutely sovereign. And the rest of the verse says, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Why I think Nebuchadnezzar says this? Because I think there's that tendency, isn't there? Lord, what have you done? (laughs) What are you doing? Job 42.2 says this, I know you can do all things and no plan of yours can be thwarted. God is absolutely sovereign. Oh, what do you think? Where are you at in the spectrum? How are you thinking about this? What is this? What kind of emotions does this stir up in you? Now, I want to do this in a, uh, how should I say, a pastoral way. I, I'm not trying to break hard truths over your back, but I want you to, I want you to wrestle with this. I don't want to try and resolve an issue that God's scripture, God's word doesn't clearly resolve. But what I do want to say is here's what it says. I want to take the water bottle and whet your appetite for this. Where are you at with this? Think about this. Why don't you go with me to Jeremiah? Back up in your Bibles a little bit. Go to Jeremiah 18. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 18. And here in Jeremiah, we have a picture. I love this picture. It's a good picture. It's a helpful picture. Uh, Really, God in context is, is giving Jeremiah a picture, an illustration about the nation of Israel. Okay? It's about the nation of Israel, and God's going to uh, the nation's been rebellious, uh, but he's, he's like he does often in the prophets, he's, he's warning them, repent, blessing will come, stay your course, judgment will come. Chapter 18 of Jeremiah, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, arise, go down to whose house? The potter's house. Go down to the potter's house and, therefore I, or, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house and there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. You guys ever seen pottery? It's an incredible thing, isn't it? Anyone ever seen it? Ever been out to the pottery, uh, what's it called, coffee pot, where they're throwing pots in the back? Awesome deal. Uh, I took a potting class in college in my last semester to fulfill a core class. Uh, I took it for two weeks, and then I changed. (laughs) I didn't even get to the wheel. I just was doing the coil pots and smoothing them out. And I said, I am out of here. I'm not a potter. I'm a tanner. I tan hides. No, I'm, I, didn't, I didn't care for potting. Okay, it took a lot of time and effort. And I realized that I didn't want to pot. It was a class for art majors. I went up to the professor. I said, hey, can I maybe get in here? And she said, oh, yeah. And I realized after about 20 hours of work in one week in a potting class, uh, I wasn't going to be a vocational potter and I changed to enjoyment of music and uh, the rest is history. But the pot, potting, all that to say, potting is incredible, isn't it? This is a, a potting thing that Brooke and I got for our wedding and uh, or for being married, yeah, for our wedding, wedding present. <laughs> and a potter on a wheel made this and he shaped this and he put the handle on there. I don't know, I thought about showing a video. Potting is an incredible deal. 
But God's giving an illustration using potting here. Okay? He says this, verse 5, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot or pull down or destroy it. If the nation against which I have spoken turns, turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom, to build it up or to plan it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think uh, better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. What's he saying? Blessing and curses. Blessing and curses. Okay, this applies to Israel. or to even includes some nations. He says, if I want to uproot a nation, I'm going to do it. Why? Because he's sovereign. Because he does as he pleases. He does as he pleases. Where am I going with this? Go to Isaiah with me. Isaiah, um, we're going to have to move here. Go to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. Remember, Jeremiah speaking, God's speaking about Israel there. But I want to show you, I want you to see how this relates uh, a little bit to us. Isaiah 45, verse 9. Verse 9. God's displaying His supreme power, uh, again dealing especially here with Israel. Verse 9 says, Woe woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. An earthenware vessel or baked pot, pottery among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, He has no hands? Woe to him who says to a father, What are you beginning? Or to a woman, To what are you giving birth? What's he saying? Who's going to say to the potter? Is this pot going to say to the potter, I wish you'd have made me a little more this way. I wish you, uh, why don't you do things this way? A pot doesn't do that. It's a pot. There's flower petals in it. Okay? It's a pot. Where am I going with this? Well, Paul uses this in the New Testament. Okay, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Okay, Romans chapter 9. And we are in no way going to dissect Romans 9 tonight, but I want to introduce you to something here. And I want you to wrestle with this as you go home and think about this. Romans 9 uh, is one of those passages that I read and it confronted me. It confronted my view of God. Paul says this, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I wish that I myself were anathema. I wish that I were accursed for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What's he saying? Paul, is, uh, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's, uh, he's of Jewish descent. And God made him a... a uh, apostle to the Gentiles, but he's hurting for his people Israel. Have you ever said this? I've never, I don't, I don't think I've ever said this. I've thought about this, but I don't know if I could, could bring myself with the kind of compassion that Paul does here to say, I wish I was accursed so so-and-so could go to heaven. I wish I was going to hell so they could go to heaven. That's strong words. That's deep-rooted compassion. He's feeling for his kinsmen, 
Verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services, the promises, who are the fathers and from whom is Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. What's he saying? Christ came from the nation Israel, and what happened? The Jews rejected him. And the Jews in large part are living in rebellion against the crucified Christ and against the God of the universe. So what's the question here? Well, the question is, God made a covenant. He made a promise to Abraham. And I'm going to argue that that promise is a promise that's not broken. It's a covenant that's not broken. But if you looked at the nation of Israel and you look at them same way, similar way now, you go, those are God's people. There's very few of them following Christ. So this calls into question, God, these are your people, these are your promised people? Is your word, is your promise really good? Well, I don't know that. Here's what verse 6 says. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not Israel who is all descended from Israel. What are you saying? There's an Israel and then there's an Israel. There's an ethnic Israel and then there's a, a, a saved Israel, called or chosen or a remnant Israel. Chosen out for God to be saved. So not all Israel who is Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Uh, that is, not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. So he's making a distinction. Ethnic Israel, chosen Israel. Okay? Uh, for this is the word of the promise. And he gives an analogy. He's going to give a word picture here. We're going to uh, move over that. You can check that over on your own. Uh, it gives a, a picture of uh, of Isaac and uh, Jacob and Esau. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Uh, Paul, do you see what Paul does here? He anticipates our question. And this is why I wanted you to weave the character of God together earlier. Because as we talk about the sovereignty of God, what happens? We, uh, I won't speak on behalf of you, but there's a tendency here to question the justice of God. You realize that? If God is sovereign, then why is that happening? How is that just? How is that fair? And Paul cuts us off in our thoughts and he says, what should we say then? Is there injustice with God? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be, Paul says. There's no injustice with God. For he said to Moses, I want you to think about this. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God will have mercy on whom he has mercy, he'll have compassion on whom he will have compassion. Verse 16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. What is he saying? What does your life, what does your soul depend on? Whether or not you run to God or run away from God, no, it depends on whether God has mercy or whether God hardens. That's what Romans 9 talks about. That's what Roman 9 leads us to. And it gives another illustration. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens, he hardens whom he desires. 
You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? The answer is, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Who can resist God's will? No one. If God wills it, it's going to come to pass. Why? Because he's sovereign. Why do you still find fault then? Do you, get, do you get the questions that are arising in your mind and Paul's confronting them? If God's sovereign, then why is man, how is man still responsible? How can you find fault in man? On the contrary, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? That's Paul's answer. How are you going to answer back to God? And here we go with the picture. How will the thing molded the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, what if, Paul speaking um, in, in possibilities here, what if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured passive sense endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared beforehand for destruction and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory one's active one's passive he passed over some leaving them in their sin hardened to the truth and he prepared some hand before for glory he prepared them both uh, even, verse 24, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. And then he gives another picture here. What's he saying? What's he saying? It's pretty obvious. Okay. I, I can't as the pot say to the potter, why'd you make me this way? It's just a pot. What do pots do? What do pots do? 2 Corinthians 4 7 says this. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, or baked clay. We have this treasure in baked clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to glory, or to God and not to us. Why did God make us? Why did He make you? Why did He make you pot? Why, did, why are you the pot that you are? Why? To give God glory. Pots point to the potter, pots go to the potter. You dig this up on the earth. I'll back your lawn, you know, dig this up and go, oh, wow. I bet the volcanic rock and the right amount of clay just mixed. And wow, look at that. Can you believe that? I found that in my backyard. What, an, what a miracle of nature. No, pots point to a potter. And pots give glory to the potter. That's what pots do. And the pot can't say. So I want to warn you. Here's my caution as you wrestle through this topic. Be careful. Wrestle through it. I, I, I heard of a pastor. I listened to a pastor. He said for weeks he went home in and, and, uh, Bible college and he put his elbows on either side of his Bible and he wept because this wrecked his view of God. And then God built it up again into a glorious view. Man was Piper. Who, as you know, who has a high view of God's sovereignty wrestle through this think through this okay i'm just hitting the, the tip of the iceberg i recognize that but i want to put that drop of water on your tongue and i want you to taste it and i want you to see that this is a good thing and i don't expect you to resolve this tomorrow 
uh, in your mind. I don't expect you to resolve something the Scripture doesn't resolve, but I do want you to see there's a good tension here. I do want you to see that man and women are fully responsible to God, their Creator. I'm not neglecting that truth. Uh, We live in what is often called a free world, and the idea of sovereign rule over that freedom can seem pretty invasive, can it? Yeah. The land of the free and the home of the brave. God's sovereign. He's free. God is free. Okay? Pots, they point to the potter. But what of salvation? What does this mean? What does this mean for man? If you're like me, uh, when you hear this, you're wrestling through it. Okay, well, do, what, do I even do anything then? Should I talk to that person? I don't know if God made him a vessel of honor or a vessel of wrath. What do I, a vessel of honor or a vessel of wrath? What do I? Well, Scripture instructs us. Paul says this in the same book. He says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. Uh, to who? To who? To the Jews first and also to the Greeks. To everyone. The gospel call is open. And I call you tonight to be born again. To repent and to turn to Christ. The gospel call is open. In fact, just the next chapter, (laughs) chapter 10, Paul says, my heart's desire and my prayer for you is for your salvation. He's talking about Israel again. Do you think the sovereignty of God stops Paul from persevering in prayer? No. It pushes him to prayer. It propels him to prayer. His desires for them to be saved. Why do you think we pray for you before we come? Because we want you to... Be saved if you're not saved. And if you are saved, we want you to grow to look more like Christ. We believe in the sovereignty of God, and yet God calls us to pray, to preach, to go, to talk, to open up the gospel call. That's what's of salvation. Open it up. Call any and all to be reborn. And trust the rest of God. Trust it all to God. What of suffering? What of suffering? Lamentations 2, I think of this, Lamentations 2, 11. Uh, Lamentations, the, the city's been destroyed, just decimated. And uh, the writer's looking on, he says, my eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach turns, my bile is poured out onto the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. Can you feel the tension? He's puking, he's in such such tension. He sees uh, his city destroyed, the people destroyed, the infants in the, and, and utter what we would call evil. You go, how can, what, is God sovereign over this? A chapter later, here's what he writes. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Lord most high that good and evil come? I'm not trying to minimize your suffering. I realize that some of you come here tonight with heavy burdens, heavy things on your heart, wrestling, didn't know if you're going to make it tonight, didn't know if you're going to put one foot in front of the other, chug along. What of sufferings? Job's attitude, Job 2.10, we have received good, shall we not receive evil? in the sovereignty of God, high views of the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering, 
again and again, I see the people with the highest view of God's sovereignty in suffering, persevering, and doing the best in the midst of their suffering. You and I can think of people off the top of our head, people in sickness and in pain and in what we would call tragedy. And you talk to them and you're the one ministered to, not them. Why? Because they're not hurting? No, they're hurting, but they have a high view of the sovereignty of God and they know, Lord's brought this about for a reason. For my good, for His good, for His glory. Okay, Genesis 50, 20. Remember Jacob's delivered in the, into the slaves and he rises up into the ranks of, uh, in Egypt. And what's he say? He tells his brothers who are guilty, he says, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. Piper says, the hardened disobedience of men's heart leads not to the frustration of God's, but to the fruition of it. The hardened disobedience of man's, uh, of men's heart leads to the frust- not to the frustration of God's plan, but to their fruition. What about the salvation of our friends and, friends and family? How about you, but my heart's desire and my prayer for them is their salvation. May it be. Bring it home for you. What about the death of Jocelyn last year on her way back to Bozeman? A young girl in the ministry here. Was God sovereign? Was he seated on his throne? Was he pacing back and forth nervously going, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. No, he wasn't. He never is. He's seated sovereignly as the ruler over heaven and earth. Does that make it easy? No. But do you know where to run to in the midst of that? I hope so. I hope so. People who have the high view of sovereignty of God, we need often to remind ourselves to go back to Paul's attitude in the beginnings of Romans 9 where he has great compassion on those who are lost, those who are suffering, those who are not uh, in the adoption, in the family of God. This, this doctrine doesn't interrupt Paul's praying. It shouldn't ours. Okay? You think this sanctuary is going to fill up with uh, students who love to praise and worship God on its own? No. It's not. You go out, you work, you labor in the fields, you, you preach the gospel, you tell people, you ask them to be born again, you tell them like Paul, you must be born again like Christ did. Okay. So what's your testimony? What's your testimony? Can you imagine going down to MSU or to the workplace or writing up your testimony for uh, evangelism class, MVC, whatever it is. You imagine, and what's your story? Well, I was the most powerful man in the world. I looked out on my kingdom and I was a beast. And for seven years, I ate grass and crawled around on the ground, humbled before God. And I went from the most powerful man on the face of the earth to a beast. And then God saved me and he brought me to life. You know what? That testimony is not altogether different from you and I as if we've been saved. We thought we were pretty hot stuff, didn't we? Or beasts, beasts before God. And the only way, the only way is by faith and repentance. You must be born again. The Lord, uh, let me read you him. Let me read you him in closing. The Lord descended from above and bowed the heavens most high, and underneath his feet he cast the darkness of the sky. On cherubim and seraphim, fully royally he rode, and on the wings of mighty winds came flying all abroad. 
Give glory to his awful name and honor him alone. Give worship to his majesty upon his holy throne. He sat serene upon the floods, their fury to restrain, and he as sovereign Lord and King forevermore shall reign. That's a God we worship. Do you know him? Do you know him? You must be born again. If you know him, worship him as sovereign king. God is sovereign hand, his sovereign hand, it bids you come and be still and know that he is God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your grace is abounded to wretches like myself, monsters, beasts, monsters of iniquity such as ourselves, and yet you would you would choose to show us grace. Some in here know you, others don't. Lord, pardon those, call those who don't. Save the called and call some horrors. As Spurgeon used to say, Lord, save your people. And sanctify, cause us to walk more like Christ, those who are. As we sing, as we reflect, as we do some, some stuff here, Lord, turn our hearts, our gaze towards you, the sovereign God of heaven and earth, to whom belongs the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Cross Life. Feel free to share this recording with others, but please do not charge for it or alter the contents in any way. For more recordings or other information about Grace Bible Church, visit gbcmt.org.